Last Sunday, we, we looked at the parable of the vine and branches, which Jesus shared with his disciples while they were walking uh, along the streets of Jerusalem headed for Gethsemane. And I believe this text that we're looking at is still in that parable. So it's not that we've already looked at it, we're still in it. Uh, the point of Jesus' teaching in this first section of the parable that we looked at last Sunday is that true disciples abide in him or remain in him. And because of this, they bear spiritual fruits such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and obedience. And earlier the same evening, when they were gathered in the upper room, Jesus had stooped to wash his disciples' feet. You may recall when we walked through that section back in chapter 13, I don't know, probably a couple of months ago. But in any case, afterwards, after washing their feet, he commanded that they follow his example and love one another in the same selfless sacrificial way, right? Chapter 13, verse 34. He basically set an example for them by washing their feet, and this was a pretty standard practice back in that day, but it was performed by the lowest kinds of servants in any household, and so it was a very um, humbling ex experience for, for these disciples to see Jesus perform this for them. He's the king of glory, and it was kind of mind-blowing, and then they wrestled with pride and competitiveness with one another, so they couldn't imagine washing each other's feet, but Jesus plainly does it for them and says, this is how I want, this is how you're to live your life, this is how you're to think, this is your attitude, and this is how you should serve one another. And in the next section, Jesus repeats this same commandment, but this time he doesn't use foot washing as an example. He's already done that for them. They're out walking on the streets now. Foot washing at this point is not conducive. So he set that first example, but in this next te text, he literally repeats the commandment that they love one another as he has loved them, that they follow the example. He does the same thing, but he uses a different example this time, not foot washing. And he literally points to what he is going to do in a few short hours at Calvary. Now, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. Our focus today will be on verses 12 and 13. I had originally planned to go further than that and realized no. So we're only going to look at these two verses this morning. And I'd like to begin at verse 12. While they were continuing to walk along the streets of Jerusalem toward Gethsemane, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is what he says to them, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus had spent most of this evening, prior to this moment, comforting his disciples because they were terribly upset and anxious and fearful and sad at his announcement that he would be leaving them to return to his Father in heaven. And so, when he announced that back at the tail end of chapter 13, this put them in a sort of emotional spiral, and, and, and they were going down quickly. 
And, and, and in my honest opinion, and I think if I were there with them, I would have behaved the same way after being with Jesus for three years straight and having him be the provider of everything. They, in many ways, acted very selfishly during supper. And, and yet, right, because they were all upset about the implication of him leaving, and they were turned inward, and they were thinking about themselves and the implications for themselves. So, so they were being selfish in a sense, but... But yet Jesus was incredibly kind and incredibly patient with them through that whole kind of emotional outburst. And in chapter 14, right, this, this comes immediately after he makes this announcement that he's leaving, that he's going to die and, and all these things and rise and, and leave. In chapter 14, they're completely spun out. What does he do? He begins to give them promises. In fact, he gives them nine according to our interpretation of the text. He gives them promises while they're hurting rather than commandments. And it, it would be important for Jesus to give them encouragements and commandments in his final hours, right? Because they're going to kind of take over the ministry for him in a few short moments here. But in chapter 14, we don't see any commandments at all. We only see promises. In fact, the last commandment we see is in 1334. And, I mean, look at, look at 15, 1 through 11 again. What does he do there? Do you see commandments there? No, you don't. You see an invitation for them to abide in him and to abide in his love, right? You see an invitation to abide in him, abide in his love, that they might bear spiritual fruit, which is the antithesis of what they had been bearing all night. Fear, doubt, anxiety. So we don't even see any commandments in the first part of chapter 15. We don't see any in 14. We don't see any at the end of 13. We see it in 1334. And yet in verse 12 of chapter 15 here, he switches from comfort to commandment. And, and I kind of see it as, okay, this would be me responding to them, enough is enough. We're now walking toward our destination, which is where I'm going to, you know, the process of me laying down my life is going to be. It's time to get focused. The, the, the tears and the sorrow, I get it. But I need for you to focus, and I need for you to obey my commandments. That's how I kind of see this moment now as they're walking. And what does he command them to do? The very same thing he commanded them to do back in 1334, that you love one another as I have loved you. Look, I understand that you love me and you're heartbroken over my departure. You don't understand all the implications of it. You don't understand that part of the gospel. I, I love the fact that you love me. It is necessary for us to love the Lord. But what he wants them to do is stop being so turned inward and, and selfish and concerned about their own emotional statuses and to focus on loving one another. He has loved them so purely and faithfully for three years, and he wants them to love one another in the same way. He commands them that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the first commandment since 1334. Now, he says the word commandments and command many times in between, but we don't really see any commandments. I did the research. This is the first commandment in 15. And the Greek root word for, for love is agapau, 
It's not agape. It's, it's, a, it's a variation of agape, but it's agapal. And it is a verb, like agape. And it means to show loving concern, to regard with affection, and to take pleasure in. So Jesus essentially tells them, I want you to show loving concern for one another. I want you to regard one another with affection. And I want you to take pleasure in one another. I want you to love each other in that way, in those ways. This is what he tells them. And the fact of the matter is, this kind of love is very unique. It's not common It can only be manifested, it can only be experienced among Christians. Now, that's not to say that unbelievers, non-Christians, can't take pleasure in one another and all these things, but we tend to understand that the way that the world loves each other is usually perverted or in some other ways that certainly fall short of God's love. So this is not to say that pagans or unbelievers can't show some of these things toward one another. But what Jesus is speaking of here in agapau is, 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 is holy. It's separated from every version and perverted version of the world's love. It can only be manifested among Christians. It can only be experienced among Christians because it comes directly from Christ as we abide in him. As we abide in him, We are filled with this kind of agapal love. And Jesus is saying, now you need to extend it to one another. But it is unique to Christians. MacArthur wrote, only those who abide in him have the capacity to love divinely as Jesus loved. At the new birth, the love of God was poured out within their hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to them. So the idea here is that this divine kind of love, this agapau, and I would extend it to agape, it comes into us as the Holy Spirit comes into us and manifests the love of God in us. And the way to increase it, the way to stoke the flames of it is that as we abide in Christ, as we remain in him, as we grow closer to him, the love increases. That's the idea. But it is for Christians only. Now, For three years, Jesus has loved these men in these ways, obviously. And now he's telling them to follow his example and and show the same kind of love for one another as they abide in him. And if they do this, the commandments Jesus referenced back in verse 10 of this chapter will be fulfilled because love is the fulfillment of the law. And if you read Romans 13.8, it says, Owe no one anything. This is what you owe to the brethren, except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And love is obviously, as we've already pointed to several times in the last week and, and even this morning, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, chapter 22, that whole sequence of fruits begins with love, which is the premier fruit, right? That is the premier 
fruit. Love is the goal. Love is the pinnacle. Love is the top of everything in Christianity. It's at the very height. What do you have? Faith, hope, and I'll show you something even more excellent, Paul says. Love. Love is even above those two things. So love is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22. And it is one of the signs of true conversion. In other words, if a person has been converted by the Holy Spirit, born again, love will be in them and they will be loving. Love will prove that they are actually in Christ, that they are actually a true believer, that they have been born again, that they have been converted by the very Spirit and power of God. Listen to these verses. These are verses that the same author of this gospel, John, wrote in his first epistle talking about love and its relationship to the true believer, 1 John 3.10. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, if a person professes to love Christ and yet hates his brother or sister in Christ, he is a child of the devil. He is doing the devil's work. He is not in God. He is not a child of God, as John says here. Very interesting. And, and John has a ton of them, so buckle your seatbelt. 1 John 3, 14, we just move up four verses. We know that we have passed out of death, right, spiritual death, to spiritual life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Boy, you can't get any clearer than that. If you profess to be a Christian and yet you hate your brother, you're in darkness. You're not walking in the light. This is what John says here. This is what the Holy Spirit says here. This is what God says here, right? 1 John 4, 7, we jump forward a whole chapter here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There is a direct connection between being born again and loving others. And he says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Do you see the direct connection between conversion, being born again, and love? Inseparable connection. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Wow. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We love other Christians. They have been born of God. Over and over, he stresses the connection between true conversion and love. If you have been truly converted by the Spirit of God, if you have been regenerated, made new, you're going to be loving. It's impossible not to be. Now, it is completely possible to be unloving momentarily, and at that point, you're not walking in the light. But there is an inseparable connection between our own conversion and love. We were converted because of love. 
God pours love into us now. Now we can love as he loves, in a sense. Certainly not with the same frequency and, and perfection because we're not perfect, but, but we can certainly strive for that. We can love as he loves us. We can extend love. The connection is inseparable. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 say about love? This is one of the most famous passages of all time. I, I'm a, a DJ who does weddings. It's like, here we go. I know they're going to bust it out. And guess what? Every time the officiant's up there, he busts this text out. They always use this text. It's such a well-known text in terms of love. What does it say? It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, in other words, if I had the ability to speak with such precision, perfection, eloquence, because angels are superior to us, right? He says, if I were able, basically, to speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm rap music. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you know what noisy gongs and clanging cymbals were back then? That was pagan worship. They marched up and down the streets, half naked, kind of like San Francisco, and they beat on drums and made all kinds of weird sounds, and nobody could discern what was going on except it was just weird and evil. And basically what he's saying is that if I had this ability to speak with such eloquence and perfection, and yet I'm not loving, I'm bad music, I'm rap. And he continues, he says, if I have prophetic powers, this, this is not like I can foresee the future. If I had the ability to unpack God's word in a unique way, if I had this skill to teach, that's what it means. If I have prophetic powers, the ability to really teach God's word, and, and I, I understand all mysteries, right? He's talking about the mysteries of scripture, and I have all this knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love. He says, I am nothing. All of that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And then he talks from a charitable aspect. Like if you're a super charitable person and you just give away and give away, give away, great, wonderful. But he says, if I give away all I have, and even his own body, listen, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. None of that is a worthy sacrifice unto the Lord. Even the giving of yourself or your possessions and belongings, none of it amounts to a hill of beans to the Lord. It's not a sweet, a fragrant aroma in his nose, right? As you think of the Old Testament system when those animals were burned, it was a, it was a fragrant offering to him. But in any case, this is, this is a stench to him if we offer up these things, go to these levels, and yet do it out of something other than love. It's not worship. It's not pleasing to him. Oh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says so much about love. Love is essential. It is key. It is to be what motivates us in what we do, and what we do for others is to be done in love. Evangelism, I mean, just go down the list. And what we must understand here is that Jesus' commandment to his disciples is our commandment. It doesn't stop at these 11 men. This is our commandment. This is every believer, true believer, every true disciple, every true convert, every real Christian. It is a commandment for all of them. All of us. Every one of us 
that names the name of Christ, that is a true believer, is to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, is to love the brethren in the same way that Jesus tells them. Dr. John Brown wrote, as a Christian, I am to cherish and exercise love toward everyone who gives evidence that he or she is a brother or sister in Christ. I love how he hangs that on there, though, that gives evidence. Because in this day and age, everyone calls themselves a Christian. And if there's no fruit on the tree, what now? We hate them? Oh, yeah. Now we hate them. I don't have to love you. I hate you because you're not bearing fruit. No, you still have to love them, but it's different. This is evangelism, people. You love them by sharing the truth with them, sharing their separation from God, their sin, their spiritual death. Point them to the remedy, the only remedy, Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. But we are to evaluate one another, make sure that we're in the faith, and then we love in this way that Jesus is commanding that we love one another. This is a specific love for the brethren. This is, this is a love that can only be experienced within Christendom, true Christendom. This is, this is something that only we can do for one another. Now, you can kind of try to extend this to the outsiders, to, to people that aren't in the faith, but we are to cherish and exercise this love toward everyone who gives evidence. Not just a profession, but as Brandon would say, he's told me this last week, a confession. You know, they don't just say they're in Christian, they kind of confess it through the way they live and through the things they do and say. They prove to be such, and that is the person that we've got to aim our sight on and love the way that Jesus loves. Now in verse 13, Jesus points to the highest example of love. This is the the highest expression of love. And he says this as he continues, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What a profound, powerful verse. I have seen it on, or in obituaries, I have seen it on gravestones, I have seen it on, on other memorials to those who have either died in battle soldiers or died as LEs, law enforcement officers, protecting us as they patrol the streets and engage criminals and murderers and rapists and whoever's out there. I have seen it used many, many, many times by fallen officers or fallen soldiers. And I, I don't object to it being used in this way. I have tremendous respect for our men and women who serve in the military and, and on the beat as police officers. Tremendous respect for them. And, and I think we all owe them a, a debt of gratitude. If they weren't out there doing what they're doing, I'd probably be on my roof with a sniper rifle right now. I mean, seriously, I, I, that was weird, but you know what I mean. I mean, we would have total and absolute anarchy. God uses that wing or branch of government to keep the tide of evil back. And if, if he were to remove that, we think the world is as bad as it can be. Oh, no, all God has to do is lift his finger off of that. And we're all defending ourselves right now. 
So I have tremendous respect for them. I don't object to the verse being used as a memorial to those who have given their life for fellow soldiers or for their citizens that they protect. I don't have a problem with that. But we need to understand that Jesus, he had something much broader and bigger in mind here. The meaning of this transcends that. He was pointing to the fact that he was about to lay down his life on the cross for those whom he considers his friends, his disciples, past, present, and future. That's what he's talking about. He's once again, as he's done pretty consistently in this gospel, he's, he's alluding to, he's pointing to his death, which is not something that they favored. You remember the time that he presented it to the disciples and Peter said, that shall never happen, and he tried to get in Jesus' way and that's not going to happen, and he gets rebuked, get behind me, Satan. The idea of Jesus dying was terrible and difficult for them to comprehend, but this is what he's pointing to. He's pointing to his death on the cross. He's pointing to the fact that he's going to die, and he's going to lay down his life for his friends. What makes Jesus's death the, the highest example of love? What, what qualifies it as that? What makes it, as Jesus said, greater love, right? That's how the verse begins, greater love. There's no greater love than this. What makes it such? Well, in order to understand, we must first come to understand what his friends are when he calls them into friendship. Okay? You see, the way that he calls a person into friendship or those whom he calls into friendship... It's extraordinary and vastly different and holy in comparison to how we call people. I mean, we don't do, we don't call the kinds of people he calls into friendship with them. We don't call them into friendship. We lock our doors so they don't get in the house. We, if we're going to understand why this is the highest example, we need to understand the nature of his friends at the point that he calls them, who they are, what, they, what they're about. What are they? Well, they are spiritually dead sinners. Ephesians 2.1. They're not connected to Christ. They're not living in him. They are dead. They are spiritually dead. They're alive physically, but they are spiritually dead. And guess what? They're not only spiritually dead to Christ, to God, they are enemies of God because of their friendship with the world. James 4, 4, he or she who is a friend of the world is an enemy or at enmity with God. So, so think about it here. Jesus comes forth through the Spirit to call someone into a relationship with him, a saving relationship, friendship, but the person that he's actually calling is a dead sinner who's an enemy of his. I don't know about you, but I don't go around trying to find enemies to make friends with. Even though we're supposed to love them, turn the other cheek, all these things. That's who he calls into friendship. Jesus has actually never, ever, ever in the history of the entire world, throughout his entire ministry, never, ever has he called a righteous person into friendship with himself because there's no such thing as a righteous person to call. He doesn't 
look over the earth looking for some righteous person. Well, that's who I'm going to pick for my friend. That's how we pick our friends. Well, he likes the same things I like. She likes the same things. Hey, there's a common connection there. Let's build on that. That's not what he does. As his eyes scan the earth, he doesn't see righteous people. Unless, of course, they're already in him. Jesus has never called a righteous person into friendship with himself because there are no righteous people to call. They do not exist. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Romans 3.23. All like sheep have gone astray. No one seeks after God. No, not one over and over over you see this in scripture now there are self-righteous people who think they are righteous but their deeds are filthy rags isaiah 64 6 jesus calls sinners into friendship with himself that's the only base he has to work with you understand? What I'm telling you is, is that no amount of religious activity or good deeds or any of these things will prevail upon the Lord, urge him, encourage him to become your friend. In fact, I think those things put a greater distance between you and he. There is no righteous people for him to choose from. He calls sinners. He calls dead people, spiritually dead people. He calls enemies of God into relationship, into friendship. What did he say in Matthew 9, 13? For I came not to call the righteous. He's being sarcastic there because there are no righteous. He says, but sinners, that's who I came to call. So when Jesus calls a person into friendship, he is calling a dead sinner, a friend of the world, an enemy of God. The way he has chosen his friends is vastly different from the way we do, isn't it? The only thing common among his friends is that they're all dead enemies of God. Now here is where greater love comes into play. And I want you to listen very closely. This is where what Jesus calls greater love comes into play. I think it's already playing upon your hearts now through the Holy Spirit. You understand who his friend base is, dead enemies. Here's where greater love comes into play. In order for Jesus to be able to call spiritually dead sinners and enemies of God into friendship with himself, he has to secure all that is necessary to make them his friends. He's got to put in some work He has to do some things to be able to get these dead enemies qualified for friendship, capable of friendship. What is it that he has to do? Well, he has to atone for their sins. He has to suffer their punishment and wrath. He has to secure their forgiveness an everlasting, eternal forgiveness. 
He has to purchase them out of the world. He has to buy them out of the world, get them out from under the corrupt, evil system that exists. He has to cleanse them, purge them of all their transgressions, purge them of all their sin, wash them white as snow. He has to provide. That's not enough, by the way. He has to provide them with his righteousness because his righteousness alone is true righteousness. This righteousness of his that he provides, that he imputes, that he gives to our accounts is perfect because he obeyed the law perfectly and that kind of righteousness is a credit to him. Perfect righteousness is a credit to him for his perfect performance. He did what we can never do with the law, obeyed it perfectly. He cleanses us, he he provides them so that he can be friends. He provides them with his righteousness, which is true righteousness. And what else does he do? He reconciles. He has to reconcile them to God, reestablish the connection that was lost in the garden. And it's a superior connection because now we have the Holy Spirit, which isn't something they had like we do now. We don't go back to the garden. What we get is greater. Jesus has to do all of these things to get Phil to a place of friendship. If Phil is going to be a viable friend to Jesus, if Jesus is going to be my friend, he's got to qualify me. He's got to get me to that place so that I can become his friend. He's essentially got to rebuild me spiritually. When Jesus went to Calvary, he went there to achieve all of these things. He hung on a cross and died to secure all that was necessary to make sinners and enemies of God his friends. Every drop of blood covered up just perfectly. It just, it, it, what he paid was precisely what had to be paid to make me, to make you his friend. It's the new covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. Why did he do this? Why did he suffer the way that he suffered? Why did he willfully, because he willfully did this. Why did he willfully lay down his life, right? In John chapter 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He volunteered for this, stepped forward and took it. Why? Why would he do this? Because he loves his friends with greater love. That's why. Because he loves his friends with greater love, with the greatest love, the greatest love. You know, one of the things that that really blows my mind about Jesus, and this just literally sets him up, I mean, he's set apart in innumerable ways, but... His sacrifice, what he did, what he accomplished, it just goes so far beyond what any soldier or police officer could do in the laying down of their lives for their friends. What he did 
it's transcendent. It goes so far beyond. And, and one of the reasons why it is such is because he was totally anticipating his death. I mean, in other words, he, he knew that he was going to the cross to die. And he had predicted this many, many times. And now just think about this. When a person intervenes on behalf of someone whose life is in danger, they're not wanting to die. They don't step into that scenario planning to die. In fact, their plan is to rescue the friend and somehow preserve their own life. I think I can make it past that barrage of bullets so I can grab Fred who's injured out on the battlefield. They're not going into it thinking they're going to die. They know it's dangerous, but they go into it trying to save Fred and trying to preserve their own life. They're not thinking about dying. And if they could somehow in those moments see in advance that intervening, if they intervene, if they jump in, if they could see that a future glimpse that if they jump in, it will result in their death, do you suppose they would go ahead and step forward and do it? I doubt it. I know for certain that if I step out and grab Fred, I'm going to get blasted and I'm gone. If they knew that, I I think they would like maybe... Just stick their leg out real quick. Shoe flies off. Okay, I ain't going out there. If they knew, I'm not convinced that they would step into it. Why? Why? Why is that? I mean, think about it. You just ask, ask yourself that question. If you knew that going out there to do that, you could see it in your mind's eye that you're going to get killed, would you step out and do it? Some of us are like, of course. I'd step out there so quick. Yeah, the bullets are flying by in a real scenario. Like, I ain't going out there. Different in the moment. Hypothetically, we all say, well, of course I would. I don't think most people would do it, if any. And why is this? Because their love of self is greater than their love of the person who's in danger. That's why. And Jesus goes to the cross knowing that he will die. He intervenes despite this fact. He's omniscient. He can see exactly what's going to happen to him. And he steps forward into the alley. Why? Because his love for those whom he went to the cross to die for, his friends, was greater than his love for his own life. His love for the Father was greater than his love for his own life because the Father had commanded that he do this. I love the Father more than my own life. I love my friends more than my own life. I will step into the alley. And he goes and he's killed. There has never been, there has never been a more costly friendship in history. Never. And there never will be. It cost Jesus everything. 
glory for 33 years in a sense. He steps out of it, becomes a man, the condescension, the humiliation. It cost him his life. It cost him everything to make me his friend. It cost Jesus everything to make you his friend. Why? Greater love. Have you answered Jesus' call to friendship? Have you? Have you repented of your unbelief, your rejection of him, your rebellion, your sin? Have you believed in him by grace through faith? Are you trusting in his life that he lived for your righteousness? Are you trusting in his death that he died to pay your exorbitant mount for your sin that you could never pay? Are you trusting in his burial that he was laid in a tomb for a number of days to settle your account? Are you trusting in his resurrection, the fact that he rose three days later? Entirely all these things he does for your salvation? Are you trusting and believing in him, in his person and work? Do you obey him? Because his friends are characterized by obedience. Not just repenting and believing in him, but obedience to his commandments. That we delight in his commands. And that we long to obey our Savior, our Master, and our friend. Is that you? It is against this backdrop that Jesus issues this commandment to his disciples as they walk along the streets of Jerusalem toward Gethsemane. This is the backdrop. This is what he's about to do the very next day to accomplish all that is necessary for those 11 men to be his friends and for every Christian of all time to be his friend. It is against this backdrop that he issues this commandment. They are to follow his example and love one another with this same greater love. With the same greater love. They can certainly never make an atonement or do any of these things. Those are accomplished by Christ alone. But they must, they must be willing to lay down their lives, to die for one another, if necessary, to go to that level. But it's more than this. It's not just about maintaining a loving willingness for those who are in Christ to lay down our physical lives at some point if that should ever happen. It's more than this. They must begin to immediately lay down their lives and die to themselves so that they can love Jesus. This isn't just about, yeah, I would die for you, Peter. Well, that's wonderful. That's what Jesus said to do, but it's more than that. Guess what, John? You need to start dying to yourself now so that you can properly love and serve Peter because as long as you're hung up on you and, and selfish and self-focused and, 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 and you're striving in these sorts of things, you can't love Peter the way that Jesus loves Peter. You can't love him the way that he loves you. You must not only be willing to die to your flesh 
if you should be so called to martyr yourself in connection to your brother or sister in Christ. You must be willing. You must pursue death to self now. They must put to death all pride when it arises like that dragon in us. Slay it. They must put to death all selfishness. They must put to death all personal striving. And let me tell you, these guys were strivers. They were competing, competing with one another over who was going to be able to get seated at maybe Jesus' left and right side. You see, pride and, and selfishness and personal striving, they do nothing but perpetuate competitiveness, strife, and disunity, which, which weaken the bonds of love, if not destroy them. The love of Jesus is, is selfless and sacrificial, and this is the goal for them. This is what they must aim for. I've got to start dying to myself so that I can love my brothers and sisters right, because I'm all hung up on myself, and I treat myself to everything and do everything while they're starving, while they don't have clothes. Die to self so that you can love rightly as Christ loves. It's a cop-out if we say, well, I'd be willing to die. I, Phil, would be willing to die for Daryl if necessary. Great. And then I do nothing else for him in between, but I lavish myself with every earthly luxury. I'm sinning. Many husbands do this with their wives. Well, you know, I, I'm a protector. I, I'll protect her, but they don't love her rightly in every other way. Husband, die to yourself now so that you can love your wife as Jesus loves you and as he loves her. Die to self now. This is what we're commanded to do. The laying down of one's life is now and maybe later in a physical sense, but it's now. We, we can't love our brothers and sisters in the Lord as he loves them, as he loves us, as, as long as we're being prideful or, or selfish or we're striving, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it as long as we are directing all of our financial resource toward ourselves. And, and here's the deal. Here's the catch. Jesus' commandment here in this verse to his disciples, it's our commandment. It's every Christian's commandment. Well, that was good for them. No. No, it's, it's what we're to do. It's archaic. It's old. It was just for them. No. No, no, no. It's not an archaic idea. It's Jesus' eternal command. It is his law. We are to follow. We are to obey this commandment. We are to follow his example and love with greater love. 
We must be willing to lay down our lives for one another if necessary, and we must begin to immediately die to ourselves so that we can love one another selflessly and sacrificially like Jesus. What he has spoken to his disciples here and to us is nothing short of what I'm telling you. In fact, it's probably well beyond that. You ought to be praising the Lord right now that I'm very limited in my time to study and my ability to comprehend God's word. Because if I was talented like maybe John MacArthur, I'd probably give you another 45 minutes on how you're to love each other. I really like what A.W. Pink wrote about these verses. He says, now in this verse, the Lord not only speaks of his own unselfish, sacrificial, illimitable love, but he does so for the express purpose of supplying both a motive and example for us. I love that. It's the love of Christ, that selfless love that Christ extended to us, calls us into friendship when we were dead, when he died on the cross while we were dead in our sin and these things. He calls us to friendship. He gives us life, makes us viable friends, does that. It's all love. It's greater love that he does. He accomplished all that was necessary to make us his friends. It's love, 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 greatest love, greatest example of love, no higher love, right? That is to be the motive for us to love others. It's the example that we follow, and it is what motivates us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us to love one another. And it's his example we must follow. And he continues, he says, He has given us a commandment that we love one another and that we love our brethren as he loved them. There is to be no limitation in our love. If occasion requires, we are to be ready to lay down our life for one another. And I take it a little further. You better start dying to yourself and laying down your life now so you can love your brothers and sisters. Because as long as you're loving yourself at that high level, you're not going to be able to love anyone else adequately or like Christ. Closing, there is a, an old story about a missionary to China who was working on a Chinese translation of the Bible. He hired a, a Chinese academic, a linguist, to help him with the project. And they spent many, many days and many, many months together going word by word and verse by verse. And as they began to near the end of the project, the missionary was just highly anticipating the moment when he would speak with the Chinese linguist about the gospel. He had held off doing so out of respect for the work they were doing, not wanting to offend him or maybe overplay his hand. And so he had this kind of plan to just get through the project. And he was even hoping that the scripture itself, as they're translating it together, would have a kind of impact on the linguist's life. And that maybe by the time the project's over, God had so worked in the linguist through the translation of the Bible that presenting the gospel at the end of it for the missionary would be just cakewalk, easy to do. I can just reiterate the gospel to him because we've already talked through that. I can invite him to trust in Christ, these sorts of things. So he was really anticipating this moment. I can't wait for this project to get done so that I can do that with him. 
And as they finished the project, the missionary asked the Chinese linguist if there was anything about Christianity that appealed to him. He replied, yes, in fact, it does. It is a a wonderful, wonderful system of ethics and philosophy, probably the best I've ever seen or known. I think if I were ever to see a Christian, I might, in fact, become interested. And the missionary protested, but I'm a Christian. What do you mean? I'm a Christian. And the Chinese linguist looked at him and said, you? Impossible. Don't be offended, but I've observed you and listened to you the whole time. If I understand Jesus correctly, he gave a commandment that you are to love one another. But I've listened to you talk about others that aren't present, saying unkind things about them. No, you're not a Christian, not at all. But if I think I ever did see a Christian, I might like to be one. If we were to spend time with an individual like the missionary did here in this story, what would they say about us? Would they say, I can tell that you are a Christian because of the way you treat others, because of the way you love others. I can tell. It's obvious. Or would they say, I'm not sure about you because Jesus said, to love one another, but you tend to be very gossipy and mean-spirited and critical of others. You're just always putting other people down. You see, an unloving Christian is an oxymoron and a detriment to the cause of Christ. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you're beginning to realize in this very moment that, that you have somehow become or been an unloving Christian. You need to address it. You need to address that. You need to let the, the Holy Spirit continue to minister to you, and you need to obey what Scripture says. Whenever we as the people of God are in sin, we are to confess our sins to God. And you know what? You may need to go to that individual, whoever it is that you've sinned against, that you've gossiped about or whatever, you may need to go to them and apologize. Mm -hmm. Chances are they probably don't even know you've been talking about them. Some other brother or sister in the Lord, and he's living his life, he has no idea, and you're over here slamming him. Or she... Is, is this what we've become? That we've somehow allowed this to creep into our lives? It's not who we're to be. No. Begin to love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Speak highly of them. And if you can't do that at any particular moment, hold your tongue and don't say anything at all. 
Find out their needs and do your best to meet them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Exhort them. Admonish them. Rebuke them in love if necessary. Jesus set us an example. The closer we get to him, I believe it'll become easier for us to follow his example. If we abide in him, if we abide in his love, we will bear the fruit of love and the Holy Spirit will help us share it with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when this happens, when this happens, and only when this happens, only then will all people know that we are His disciples. When the outside world, it's such a powerful testimony to an outside, perishing, dying, sinful world, when brothers and sisters in the Lord love one another, sacrificially, selflessly like Jesus. Powerful testimony. Back in chapter 13, Jesus says, you do that, all people will know that you are my disciples. If that missionary to China had just adjusted what he was doing and stopped doing that, that linguist's testimony about him would have been vastly different, wouldn't it have? What do we aim for, people? What do we aim for, beloved? We are to love like Jesus, selflessly and sacrificially, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is our commandment. That is our mandate. Find ways to do that this week. Find ways to do that. Amen.